Hello, everyone. I'm Billy. And I'm Comron. Welcome to the Horse Frog Podcast, home of your two favorite professional digressors and the creators of the Malazan Brotherhood. Today, we will be discussing Book 7, Chapter 24, and the epilogue of Gardens of the Moon, a novel in the Malazan Book of the Following. This podcast series is intended to be a companion to reading or listening to the books set in the Malazan universe. It's not a book review, and it is most definitely not intended to be a replacement to reading the books. Both Billy and I know this to be the best fantasy story ever written and want to share our love of the series with you. Witness. <laughs> um, we'll be covering the events of the books in a linear fashion. There was... <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, I tried to sneak that witness in. Let me try that again. Uh, we will be covering the events of the books in a linear fashion. There will be spoilers for those that have not read the books. We will try not to spoil anything prior to us covering that portion of the respective book, but knowing me and my big mouth, I'm sure to spoil something for someone. So in advance, I'm sorry. Just sorry. I mean, a deeply sincere sorry for not taking the time to find something to be sorry for, especially for this momentous final episode of Gardens of the Moon. I know that y'all have come to rely on my sorry, so sorry. Uh, give it time, folks. <laughs> A quick warning, today's episode contains violence, both of the physical and metaphysical types. Listener discretion is advised. Now, our show is listener-supported. If you'd like to support us, we would really appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting our Patreon link on our website, horsefrogproductions.com. Currently, we are posting ad-free episodes on Patreon. Also, we would really like to hear from you. Send any feedback or comments to contact at horsefrogproductions.com. All right, chapter 24. The chapter begins with a poem, quote, I am the house imprisoning in my birth demonic hearts, so locked in each chamber some trembling enraged antiquity. And these roots of stone spread the deepest cracks in parched ground, holding forever the dream of fruit. Ah, pilgrims come to my door and starve. The poem is titled Azath by Adiphon. Mm. And... This poem does a good job of displaying what the Azath are doing when they capture an entity with their roots. We saw this at the end of chapter 22, where yes. the remains of Mammoth were reassembling in the pit after Hedge yeah. was shot him with the cusser. <laughs> yes. And the roots Ooh. came and grabbed him and then pulled him towards the back of the garden. So a quick question then on the on the rider, Adafon. Mm -hmm. We know who that is, right? I don't know if it's been established yet. Yeah, I think it has. Remember, he was he was called out by by Shadow Throne. Oh, okay. Remember, he call, he screams. I'm sure it's Ben. Okay. Because he screams. That's how we know the name. He goes, Adafon, Ben the Lad. Yeah. He just mm -hmm. is furious. And so I'm assuming that's Quick, Ben. Okay. That's going to be my assumption. We haven't met any others with that name. Right? So it's pretty unique. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> it's not <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> All right, we've, we've done enough on that. <laughs> Sorry, Kyle. Yeah, for those that may not have listened, we were talking about Esselmont's main character that takes us through his arcs, Kyle. Which are good. <laughs> the, arc, the arc is great, but the, the, the name... Yeah, but there's so many other good names in there, but we were wondering how many of those characters that were introduced were actually names that were made by Erickson versus Esselmont. Because Erickson has yeah. so many good names. Yeah, he does. We'll have he's to go just... and do some digging. Maybe he's been using the A. Maybe he's been using Chat GPT. Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm just trying. Chat GPT could not relevant. come up with this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm just trying to stay somewhat relevant. I don't know anything about it other than the name. So okay, that's my AI reference for the day. All right. <laughs> yeah. Good luck on AI generating anything close to this. Please. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Krogus approached Baruch's compound and found the area beyond the gate was empty. He ran through the gate and wondered if he was too late. Quick reminder, he was told by Ralik that he needed to warn Baruch that Vorkin was coming for him. Yes. Krogus ran up the steps and reached for the door latch. A burst of energy flung him backward. He found himself sitting on the paving stones in front of the steps. His flesh tingled. I imagine that feels a bit like getting tased or getting shocked by an electric fence. <laughs> and I do have a funny story here if you, if you want to hear it. Absolutely. If it involves something awful happening to you, I'm all down with that. But I also, okay. I, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be that. I love you. No, it did I happen also, to me. I also have, I, I have a funny one involving my cousin, and I was present in an electric fence. So, yes, I want to hear yours because I'll tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, we live in Texas. There are gun shows here. And yep. my friends and I went to a gun show one time. We're looking around. We saw this one booth, and the guy had some tasers. So one of our friends bought the lowest wattage. I think no, I think they're in kilovolts, right? How are they rated? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. But it's the amps. It's the amps that's a bad deal. He got the lowest one that they okay. had. Okay. So we came home and we took turns tasing each other with this thing. <laughs> I have never laughed so hard in my life because it wasn't like one of those ones that knocks you out. It felt like you were getting yeah. hit by a rubber band and you just fall on the ground. And right. we weren't holding it on ourselves, but man, I really have not laughed that hard ever in my life. It was so funny. We're just, <laughs> we were young. Yours is not awful. Yours is funny. But it was, yeah, it was kind of, funny, yeah. Mine's, mine's awful for the person involved, and it's funny for me because I was witnessing it. So we, my uncle has, of course, growing up in Texas, he has some livestock and he had an electric fence. And we would all take time, you know, we a few times we'd be, actually all be gathered together as cousins and stuff. But it's one of those times we're actually all together. And we were all like daring each other. We touch that fence and let it zap you because it's kind of like give you a little pop. It didn't mm -hmm. hurt, but it's just kind of tangled. But it's fun. Mm -hmm. Kind of like you know what y'all are talking about. <laughs> my my young cousin does this. And she's got a she's got a ring on one of those oh. cheap little mood rings kind okay. of deal. And you know her ring, her ring got caught on that thing. Oh no! <laughs> and she was and she was latched onto that thing. And you know oh, once no. the electricity goes in, you're holding it. You can't oh, let no. go. <laughs> So they came out. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. She was okay, folks. I'm sorry. I'm not a sadist. But I love my how cousin, long was she attached to this thing? It probably seemed like an eternity. It wasn't probably 10 or 15 seconds, but it was. Oh, my you know, gosh. It, how old was she? It was pretty rough. She, she, I was like seven or eight, so she'd have been about 12 or 13. So. Oh, man. I can only imagine. My daughter's so getting howls, to be about that age. Yeah, yeah well, the howls. Oh, man. Oh, That's there terrible. was some howling. Oh, it was awful, dude. I've never heard anything like it. It was awful. Oh. <laughs> How mad was she? Oh my word! I don't remember. I can't remember that. It's kind of, it's it's like I don't. Rem it's been so long ago. Uh -huh. I just can't. I just can't forget the fence. I don't remember what happened after that. This is forty years ago. Okay, so, okay. So it's gotcha. like I got no idea, but it's like whoa. But I ain't never gonna forget that image. I bet. And I still laugh about. It. I shouldn't laugh about that. It's terrible. It is terrible. Bad. Suffering of others is uh, not amusement <laughs> for me. It's really not. But. Yeah, it just had to be there. You know what it is, man. It's yeah. kids being mean and funny, and sometimes it's it, it wasn't we we didn't mean for her to get caught. It wasn't you know not like we set this up for her. it. Just happened. Don't wear rings touching metal fences, electric fences. This, this reminds me of, of stories. <laughs> oh yeah, bring it on. Well, I, I don't want to get too far down this road. We'll talk more about this later. But I have a number of stories from this ranch that my cousin had an uncle that was on mm. her dad's side of the family right so i'm related to her mom but on her okay. dad's side she had an uncle 
and we went up to this ranch that he worked on uh, around San Jose, California. I got a number of stories uh, from that. Well, I'll tell them later, but there was an electric fence story with my brother, similar to what you're talking about. (laughs) Rabbits there that were kind of like Monty Python, you know, making noises. (laughs) I could just go on and on. So we'll move along now. Okay. Stay tuned for future episodes. I'm sure it'll come up. (laughs) Yes. The door emanated a deep crimson glow, which slowly faded. Crocus realized it was a ward and hissed, Hood! He climbed to his feet. He had experience with wards before in the higher estates and knew there was no way to bypass them. He cursed again and whirled, then ran to the gate. He emerged onto the street and looked around, seeing no one. If the crimson guards still protected him, they weren't visible. He theorized there was a very slight chance that the garden entrance to Baruch's estate was unguarded by magic. He ran down the street and turned into the first alley on the right. He'd need to scale a wall, but he didn't consider that much of an obstacle. As he came to the alley's end, he skidded to a halt. The wall was high and he'd need a running start. He trotted across the street and tried to catch his breath. He wondered why Baruch needed to be warned. Couldn't he take care of himself? After all, he was a high mage, and Fingers had commented on the alchemist's sorceress defenses. A piercing, earth-shaking scream was loosed directly above the street. Crocus threw himself against the wall as an enormous shape descended into the gaslight. It struck the ground less than 20 yards to his left. The impact shattered stones and threw him from his feet. He ducked as he was assaulted by a hail of bricks and cobbles. When it stopped, he jumped to his feet. He saw a dragon, its wings tattered and streaked with blood, as it slowly regained its feet. It wagged its massive head from side to side. Along its brown flanks, scales had been torn away, revealing deep puncture wounds. Its neck and shoulders glistened with blood. Crocus saw that Baruch's wall had been obliterated by the impact, opening the garden to his view. The dragon looked stunned. Crocus tensed. Now was the time to move. He darted into the street behind the dragon. His gaze remained on the dragon as he ran, his thoughts on the coin of luck in his pocket. I have to commend his bravery here. This is a teenager that is so driven to complete the mission that Rally gave him that he's willing to run past this dragon. And that's really impressive given he's never seen anything like this before. Then again, he just saw Moonspawn hanging out of the sky. So that, that I agree. That's that, and he does have a lot, a lot of strength and courage on display here from Crocus. But and it is great to see. But is it that, or is it that Relic is so terrifying? He just better not mess this up. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? I don't know because Relic seems to they, they love the boy, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm assuming that like any somewhat big brother parental figure, there is a a, a modicum of terror laced in there mm-hmm. of the of the father-like figure so i think there's probably some of that in there but i think he's also this i mean relic's bad but the dragon's meaner so i think it's all crocus here man it's yeah. all crocus knuckling it through dude yeah he's also got this lucky coin right it might be making him yes. a little bit more brazen than he would normally be that could be possibly yeah better not lean on that too much <laughs> Before Crocus's eyes, the creature's shape changed, drawing into itself in a shimmering haze. Crocus slowed, then stopped, unable to stop watching the transformation. His heart hammered in his chest. He told himself in terror that his luck had just ended. <laughs> Talking about that coin again. <laughs> yep. The shimmering faded, and a giant man-shaped apparition now stood on the street, cloaked and cowled. Crocus tried to will himself to move, but his body refused. He stared, eyes widening, 
as the demon turned to him. It snarled and removed an enormous axe from its belt. It lifted its weapon and spoke in a deep, soft voice. It said, What reason to continue this? The Empress permits your escape, Lord. Once again, she grants you mercy. Accept it and leave. Crocus whispered, Good idea. He frowned as he realized the demon's attention was directed past him. A man spoke behind Crocus. We run no further, Gawain. A hand fell on Crocus's shoulder, and it broke his spell of immobility. He ducked and spun to one side, then looked up into shifting indigo eyes set in a black, narrow face. The man, who we know as Animander Rake, said, Flee, mortal. Rake drew Dragnapur from its sheath. The weapon seemed almost invisible, as if it swallowed all light that found it. Crocus blurted out, You were at the fate! Rake's eyes flickered, as if seeing Crocus for the first time. He said, Coin bearer, fear not. Brood has convinced me to spare you, at least for the moment. Be gone, child. Rake's eyes returned to the Galane Lord. He said, This will be a close thing. The demon snarled, I know that weapon, Dragnipurake, and I smell the reek of Tiama in you, Lord. There is more of her in you than Tist and E blood. Tiama would be Tiam, and the blood of Tiam flows in all dragons. So I think she's the mother dragon basically right yes yeah and this blood is what the tistandi who are soul taken took into themselves to become dragons the statement that there is more dragon blood than tistandi and rake is interesting do you think he drank more deeply from the well than the other tistandi and that's why his dragon form is so much larger is it that or age but then again you know to have drank blood of dragons the dragons would have to have existed first yeah in this situation for him for the blood for him to drink so i i'm not really sure but i is it, is it that it's probably i'm assuming his size is due to his link to darkness that's got to be it dude okay solana's true blood and she's smaller than him so yeah. there's got to be something else and she's going smaller on. than him but she's also female and i would have thought that yeah that's that's true i mean the female like in a lot of species she could be the smaller of the of the of the species doesn't mean they're less powerful this some less mm -hmm. smaller possibly but uh i i got I, i'm real curious about that okay but I, one thing i do love about erickson man he doesn't do dungeons and dragons this guy does dragons and dragons <laughs> <laughs> yeah do you think the galane lord crocus saw the damage from rake's attack when it was in dragon form the scales on his back were ripped up right yeah when it transformed back into its demon form there really isn't a mention of it being wounded. Do you think it's still? Uh, yeah, I kind of think I, I'm like you in a weird, I, in a way, I almost feel like him shifting to this form because he shifted to a different form instead of maybe, maybe by doing so that's a, almost a heal. Cause I feel like he's, he's, he appears to be unhurt almost. Right. His, his real cat, the way he talks to him, he's real even tempered, real, you know, like he just, the way he speaks to him here is very, he's very even keeled, no exclamation right. points. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Okay. Crocus backed against what remained of Baruch's wall. The demon grinned, revealing long, curved canines. It said, The Empress would reward your services, Lord. You've only to say yes, and this battle can be avoided. Rake stepped forward and said, Attend, Gawain. The demon roared as it attacked, axe whistling through the air and streaming blue flames. That's a cool visual with the blue flames trailing from the weapon. Oh, yeah. This is another one of my images that I carry from this book always. 
is this battle and a lot of the imagery with his glowing sword, glowing axe, you know, that's or the dark sword that's got the negative glow mm. of, of this of the drag mm-hmm. of dragged her but uh yeah this is stuff i carry around I, th- I think i carry more images from gardens of the moon than most other books from the series because this is where my starting point was interesting and i know i'll i, I know i say that but i i you know and then there's there's things that stand out in other bits and pieces but i think this is the one i tend to kind of remember the most as a whole Okay. I don't know why. I think it's because it's always the start. Because technically, it is just the start of the of the series. Mm-hmm. I have pretty good set of memories from most of them, actually. Yeah, I, I think I do too. I just have to have them broken apart, and I look again. I look forward to us continuing forward and exposing these other memories and go, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because <laughs> there are some things that very much stand out. Mm-hmm. Rake whirled his sword in a circle, catching the axe and adding to its momentum. As the axe blade swept past, Rake stepped in close, sword drawn back, pommel against his left hip. In a blur of motion, he extended the blade. The demon ducked and, releasing one hand from the axe haft, reached for Rake's throat. Rake twisted his right shoulder and caught the blow. Rake was thrown backward and landed heavily on the cobbles. The demon pounced, its axe held above its head. Rake stood in time to catch the axe with his sword. The clash of weapons sent a jolt through the air and ground. The demon's axe flared bright white, cascading light like liquid. Rake's sword was swallowed in darkness, devouring the lashing waves of light that struck it. Again, this imagery of the light bleeding from the axe is really cool. And Dragnapur drinking the light almost makes it seem like a black hole devouring the light. Yes. Nicely stated. That's exactly kind of how I feel with that. It's just yeah. sucking it in. That'd be really cool to see. Yeah. The flagstones beneath Crocus's feet tilted sickeningly as if the stones themselves had turned to soft clay. Overhead, the stars swam wildly. Crocus fell to his knees, gripped by nausea. Rake attacked with savage swings of his sword. At first, the demon held its ground, delivering fierce riposte, then staggered back a step, then another. Relentless, Rake pressed his attack. Between attacks, he grated, to the mother's regret was light granted birth. To her dismay, she saw too late its corruption. Ghislaine, you are the unintended victim to punishment, long overdue. I wonder if Mother Dark truly felt this way, or if this is something the Tist Andy that were abandoned believe. You know, I almost feel like it's the latter. I feel like it's the, I think it's almost like a tradition that sprung up over many thousands of years of, of her absence, yeah. that this has grown up more than actual, than it actually is. And I could be wrong about that, And I, but I would think he would know closer than anyone. I agree with you. I, I think it's something that's been ritualized and, you know, they've kind of built it up over the hundreds of thousands of years since this has happened. Yes. The demon reeled beneath the blows, desperately parrying every attack, no longer counterattacking. The light bleeding from the axe flickered, dimmed, flared fitfully as darkness closed in around the blade. Shrieking, the demon launched itself at Rake. As it descended over Rake, Crocus saw a streak of black burst from the demon's back, slicing through the cloak. The axe flew from the creature's hands, its fire dying as it clattered to the ground. The demon squealed in horror and clawed at the sword impaling it. Black smoke spread in swift tendrils from the weapon. They engulfed the demon. The smoke twisted, became chains, drawing taut. The Ghislaine screamed in earnest. Rake regained his feet and pushed the sword through the demon's chest until the hilt jammed against the bone. 
The demon sank to its knees, its black eyes locking with Rake's own. The swimming stars settled. The flagstones beneath Crocus became solid again, though they were now warped and twisted. That's crazy that they actually melted from that sorcery that was going on. Yes, <laughs> I know it. Yeah. Impressive. Crocus swallowed bile, his eyes fixed on the demon. It seemed to collapse in on itself, the chains of black smoke ever tightening, pulling the creature into the sword. It toppled backward and Rake drove the weapon's point into the cobbled street, pinning the demon. Then the Tistendi leaned heavily on the hilt, and Crocus now noticed the blood-soaked cloth surrounding Rake's shoulder, where the demon's hand had struck. Wearily, the Tistendi swung his gaze to the thief. Rake rasped, Move quickly. The alchemist is in danger. I cannot protect him now. Hurry, coin bearer. Crocus whirled and ran. This is the first time we saw what Dragonpoor does to its victims described in this level of detail. Even when Rake killed the hounds, it wasn't like this. No, no, not like this. This is really graphic and yes. it's pretty scary. <laughs> also, what a beast Rake is. Really impressive showing on his part. That demon was the most powerful yes. thing we've seen thus far. Question, do mm -hmm. you think Race would have been more powerful than this demon if he had secured the Finest? I think that there's a chance that race may have already been this powerful as this demon before the, he even oh, had wow. the finest. Cause remember he handled five, he handled five dragons pretty readily. Okay. You know, so he's already raced is I think raced his next level, but at the same time, this guy knocked rake around a little bit and we haven't seen anyone do that yet. Mm -hmm. I think this is the first guy we've seen actually knock him around. I mean, the attacks from taste from them doesn't really count because we know that he was fighting more defensively. Right. And so, here this was like wow it is it was cool to see him actually get challenged but then just unlo he just unleashed that beast mode he did <laughs> yeah that flurry of blows i, I can just really see that in my head it's a bam 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 just keep wailing faster and faster as it goes yeah and on that note what a visual spectacle this could be especially if shown from the yes. perspective of crocus that would really impart oh, that sense of just how powerful these entities are on the person watching. Yes, because he is most assuredly the only commoner as far as no power, just normal fella. I mean, he was almost just crushed or burned or something by just the wielding of the sorcery, not the sorcery itself. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just breaking loose the power was enough to warp the cobbles around him. It's like, wow. Yes. Not only is he just a commoner, he's not even a soldier or anything. He's not used to seeing yeah, this kind of stuff. He's a kid. Yes. You know, Crocus really jumps up on our levels of estimation real quick. Yeah, he does. In, in situations like Once this. Chalice is out of the picture, he does yeah. a pretty good job here. I got to give it to him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he got his head straight. Relic and Rake. Yeah, real quick. <laughs> real fast. When the double R's get on you, you better get it quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Inside Baruch's compound, both Baruch and Derudan had felt the death of Travail, third in the Torud Cabal. Derudan had inscribed an ash warding circle on the floor in the center of the room. They had placed two chairs in the circle, and she now watched a Baruch pace as she smoked. Baruch didn't want to enter the circle since he felt they wouldn't be able to magically protect themselves. Someone with access to Odotarl could also penetrate the warding circle. Baruch mentions here that Odotarl is a rust-like substance that comes from the Tano Hills of Seven Cities. So that's the first time we've gotten that level of detail on where it's coming from. Yes. And I, I think we've talked about this before, and I just forget how much the general public is unaware of Odotarl. 
It's such a closely guarded secret. Yes, the Malazan Empire doesn't want people to know about it. Yes. And they tightly control access to it. Yes, we, we think we, we think it's common because we hear it bandied about a lot in this series, but it's not common at no, all. No, because you have Lauren with the sword. And then Ralik somehow mm -hmm. got access to it. Yeah. And so you think, oh, okay, it's fairly common. The cast of characters isn't that big. And these are some of the most major yeah. characters in this book. Would you say that auditorial is probably more rare than diamonds? <laughs> wow. No, are I'm, you being sarcastic? Just, you know, diamonds just... are not rare. No, no, no. Well, I mean, real. Artificial well, they're not, they're, scarcity. Rare. Well, I'm talking, well, I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I thought diamonds were more rare. Mm. You know, with, it's a yeah. moist tonight. <laughs> Spurious, mate. <laughs> <laughs> we just watched that about a month or two ago. I thought KP did like that, by okay. the way. She doesn't like a lot of stuff, but she did enjoy that. That would be Snatch Spurious, for, for those of you that yes. have not seen that movie. Great movie. Guy Ritchie. Awesome. <laughs> <Like Dykes? laughs> I know you do. <laughs> You've got a, you got a whole, whole posse. Oh, let me there. tell you what's been going on today. I'm <laughs> okay. in a call for work. I work from home. And I look out my back window and there's a bunny in the backyard. Wild bunny. Oh. I guess it would be a wild hare. Is it a hare? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's a hare. Okay. The dogs <laughs> you have been him? no. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> no, there was no coursing. Okay. <laughs> I did not want to witness that happening. So yeah. all day this bunny basically moved into the backyard, dude. All day it's just kind of <laughs> chilling, going around the backyard. So we had to put the dogs in the back on leashes to let them use the restroom if they did go outside. But right. then, you know, in the house, they're not in their kennels all day. They would see this bunny just chilling, eating grass. And they're the, the younger one <laughs> can out, jump dude. like nine feet straight up in the air. She's jumping up, howling at the window, trying to scratch and get this thing. Oh, oh my gosh. It was, it was just loud all day. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you evict the rabbit? No, I mean, I was working. I didn't have time to chase okay. this rabbit around my oh, backyard. I'm sorry. The, you know. I'm sorry. Now it's going to the Looney Tunes. This one, chase the rabbit. Chase the rabbit. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but there wasn't any coursing. All right. No coursing. Okay. I'm ashamed. Right. I wanted to pair them fine shoes. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen Snatch, watch it. You'll get the joke. Yes, please. Baruch felt it was unlikely that Vorkin would use Odotarl, given she was a high mage. Derudan said, Those of the Cabal who are now dead, yes, stubborn, convinced of their own invincibility. No doubt they paced restless steps, awaiting the assassin's imminent arrival. Baruch stopped pacing to reply, but was interrupted when they heard a loud, inhuman scream from outside, followed immediately by a concussion that rattled the walls. And this would be the Ghislaine demon falling from the sky and shattering the wall to the compound. So this is right. syncing up the timelines here. Baruch moved toward the door. Derudan shouted, wait, appease not this curiosity, Baruch, for Vorkin will surely take advantage. Yes, Baruch said, a ward was shattered. My defenses are breached. Derudan said, more the reason for caution. Friend, I plead with you. Join me here. Baruch sighed very well and moved toward her. He felt a gust of air brush the left side of his face. Derudan cried out a warning even as he turned. Vorkin surged toward Baruch. Her hands glowed red. He raised his arms to defend himself. Another figure emerged from darkness to intercept Vorkin with a flurry of attacks. Vorkin reeled back, then lashed out with a hand. It caught her attacker with a glancing blow. 
The tissed Andy woman who had leapt to Baruch's aid let loose an agonized shriek. Baruch stepped aside as she flew past him to strike the floor, then the wall, where she no longer moved. Baruch looked back to Vorkin and saw that one of her hands no longer glowed. He gestured and arcing yellow lightning shot from his arm. Vorkin hissed a counterspell and the lightning was swallowed by a red haze before her that dimmed quickly then disappeared. She advanced. That's very menacing. I wish I knew yes. what her warrant is. I did some research and came up empty-handed, actually. I'm assuming that she, too, is a closely guarded state secret. <laughs> because there's a, yeah, she's a hard one to find that much yes. about. Yes. Very little information. Yeah. But her advancing here, isn't it like a Terminator oh, a little bit? Do you, it's a little Terminator. It's a little Vader. It's a little oh, Okay. Okay. <laughs> See that? You know, I, it's just got a, it's, it's very, I just forget what an intense, I mean, it's such an intense book, but the last chapter is just so intense, dude. Mm. <laughs> so much going on, you know, all over the place. Yeah. Baruch heard Darudan shouting at him, yet it was Vorkin's death-filled eyes that held him. The ease with which she dispelled his magics made it clear that she was his better when it came to sorcery. And this was really impressive on Vorkin's part. She just did the yes. uh, cancel it out hand wave, you know, like my kids do when we're playing. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. I blocked it. That's my youngest yeah, did. I blocked that. it. I blocked it. <laughs> Now you are a champion. <laughs> um, but I love how she just wades through them. And the Tariq Cabal aren't a bunch of lightweights either. No. You know, these are the uh, these are the secret powers that be behind here. And these guys, she's just wading through them like they're nothing. High mages. Many of them have access to multiple warrens. Nothing to scoff yes. at. And she's just like, yeah, snaps. And, it's gone. And uh, Yeah. And also with the Tist and D, I mean, basically, we didn't even know it's a Tist and D until it's dead and on the ground. You know, it's like you couldn't see it. It's happening so fast. And then wait, and she, she and she takes out the physical as well as the sorceress. That's really scary. And she's a force to be reckoned with. That's certainly the case. Yes, she is. Her, oh, never mind. I know the answer. Mm -hmm. Never mind. I was going to say her versus a certain Tarthanol. <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't need to ask that question. You don't need to ask that question. I know. What, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Baruch knew that all he could do now was await his death. He heard a grunt behind him, then Vorkin gasped. The hilt of a dagger protruded from her chest. Frowning, she reached for it, then pulled it out and tossed it aside. Baruch heard the tissed Andy woman gasp from the floor behind him. All, all I can do. My apologies, Lord. Darudan suddenly appeared behind Vorkin. As she raised her hands and began an incantation, Vorkin spun and launched something from her hand. Darudan grunted, then crumpled. Baruch was filled with anguish. He roared and launched himself at Vorkin. She laughed and ducked to one side, throwing out her glowing hand. He twisted and narrowly avoided her killing touch. He heard her laughter again as she moved in behind him. She's so confident she's laughing, almost like she's playing with him. Oh, it's very terrifying. It is very casual. Yeah, it's very sadistic almost. She's really playing really toying with him kind of makes you think she might not like him very much yeah but she certainly enjoys her job doesn't yeah, she? yeah <laughs> it would seem so she's I mean, she takes to it so the assassins we've talked about them more the assassins here are are something to be feared in this world yes some of my favorite characters yeah the door to the room lay a dozen feet in front of baruch his eyes widened to find it open with a youth crouched there holding blockish objects in each hand and we know the boy is crocus mm. Baruch threw himself forward to dodge Vorkin's attack from behind. 
He saw Crocus straighten at the same time and throw something with his right arm, then his left. As Baruch fell toward the floor, two bricks flew over him. He heard them strike the woman behind him, one making a crunching sound, the other crackling. A flash of red accompanied the crackle. Baruch hit the floor so hard the breath was knocked from his chest. Seconds passed as Baruch struggled to draw in air. He then rolled onto his back. And remember, he is a bulky individual. He is not yes. in the best of shape. So him dodging yes. and then flying forward, he's not the most graceful individual. Yes. Landing on your gut would be hard when you got a lot of gut to yeah, land yeah. on, I'm assuming, too. Baruch saw Vorkin as she lay motionless, almost against his feet. Crocus's sweaty face came into view, and he said, Alchemist Baruch? Baruch nodded. It, this scene with Crocus's <laughs> face coming into view would be almost comical if filmed correctly. You know, just like the oh, yes. sweaty face comes into frame. It needs to be. It, it needs to be comical. After all this tension and after all this craziness, you need him up there like, uh, Alchemist Baruch. Yeah. <laughs> Crocus sighed and then grinned. He said, you're alive. Good. Ralik sent me to warn you. <laughs> Baruch sat up and said, the witch, tend to her, please. He pointed to Daridan. Baruch felt his strength return. He watched Crocus crouch beside Daridan. Crocus said, she's breathing. There's some kind of knife in her. Looks like it's covered in sap. He reached down to touch it. Baruch shouted, no. Crocus jumped back in alarm. Baruch climbed to his feet and said, poison. Help me to her, quickly. He came to Daridan's side and glanced at the sap-like substance coating the blade. He said, white peralt. Crocus asked, that's a spider, isn't it? Baruch laid a hand on Daridan and said, your knowledge surprises me, boy. Fortunately, she's in the home of the one man who possesses its antidote. He muttered a cantrip and a vial appeared in his hand. Crocus said, Ralik said there was no antidote to white peralt. Baruch said, it's not something I'm likely to announce and unstoppered the vial and poured the contents down Daridan's throat. She went into a coughing fit. Daridan's breathing became even, and Baruch leaned back, then eyed Crocus. He said, you seem well acquainted with Ralik. What's your name? Crocus said, Crocus. Ma'am, it was my uncle, sir. I saw him die. Daridan's eyes fluttered, then opened. She smiled and weakly said, what I see pleases me, yes? Baruch returned her smile and said, yes, my friend. But I make no claim for defeating Vorkin. That falls to Crocus, nephew of Mammoth. Daridan turned to Crocus and said, Ah, the one I came near to treading on earlier this evening. That was at the fate. <laughs> she screamed when yes. he was by the fountain. <laughs> Her smile faded and she said, I am sorry for Mammoth, child. Crocus said, So am I. Baruch rose and turned. He cursed when he saw Vorkin's body was gone. He said, She's fled. Baruch then hurried over to the Tist Andy woman and bent down and examined her. She was dead. He whispered, I will soon know your name and I will remember it. Crocus said, I have to go. Baruch wondered at the sudden panic in the boy's face. Crocus went on. I mean, if everything's over here, that is. Baruch said, I believe it is. I thank you, Crocus, for your skill at throwing bricks. Crocus went to the right. door, then paused and tossed a coin into the air. He caught it and grinned tightly. He said, just lucky, I suppose. Then he was gone. Perrin crouched beside Call's bed. He said, still asleep. He rose and faced Whiskey Jack. He said, go ahead. Kalam, Fiddler, and Hedge had arrived minutes earlier. Whiskey Jack thought, 
So far, no losses, though Perrin's armor had taken a beating and the look in his face when he'd entered the room with Lauren's body in his arms warned him away from probing Perrin's state of mind too deeply. Lauren's body now occupied a second bed. She had a strange, ironic smile curving her pale lips. Whiskey Jack studied everyone in the room. The faces he knew so well all watched him and waited. He focused on Absalar. Whatever Mallet had done to her had caused a significant change in her. Even Mallet was unsure of what he'd done. Certain memories, skills, had apparently been freed, and with them the brutal knowledge of what she had done since her possession. The pain was there in her eyes, yet it seemed that she had it under control and that she could live with what she had been. Her only words upon meeting Whiskey Jack had been, I wish to return home, Sergeant. He had no objection, but he wondered how she planned to cross two continents and the ocean between them. In response to Perrin's command, Whiskey Jack reached for the wrapped forearm bones lying on the table and said, yes, sir. What did you call these things? I don't remember what I called them. Dude. Okay. It's a communication device that they used to speak with Dujak yeah. earlier in the book. Yes. I thought you had a really clever name for it. I probably did, but I, it's like, dude, I, for, I forget what I say from one minute <laughs> to the next. <laughs> Whiskey Jack hesitated. There'd been a battle in Darujistan's streets, and Quick Ben had confirmed the Galane Lord's death. In fact, Quickben seemed still in shock. Whiskey Jack sighed under his breath and massaged his newly healed leg, then drove the forearm's blade into the tabletop. Contact was immediate. Hyphus Dujak's voice filled the room. About time, Whiskey Jack. Don't bother telling me about the Galane Lord. Tatrin's in a coma or something. Everyone at headquarters heard his scream. So Anamander Rake took out the beast. What else? Wow. That must have been quite the surprise to Tatrin. I wonder what type of link he had with this demon. Do you think is it like him driving it? But it didn't. But that thing seemed to have its own. He seemed to be well aware, unless that was Tatrin talking. Through I don't him. think so. I think the demon had its own faculties. Yeah, it seemed to be well aware of what was going mm -hmm. on. So I, I'm really curious. What would? How would that link be there? Maybe it has something to do with the relationship between the person that summons and binds the demon. Right. It's kind That's of a two-way connection type deal. Yeah, you probably nurture it in some extent, I guess, and when it's killed, you get some kind of backlash. Maybe. Feedback loop or something like that. Or Maybe it's because it was killed by Dragnapur. Maybe that made it worse. That could be it, too. That doesn't help, I'm sure. Whiskey Jack glanced at Perrin, who nodded deferentially. Whiskey Jack said, Adjunct Lauren's gambit failed. She's dead. We have her body with us. The intersections remain mined. We're not detonating them, High Fist, since they're likely to open the gas caverns beneath the city and turn us all into ash. So, Whiskey Jack drew a deep <laughs> breath, feeling a twinge from his leg. Mallet had done what he could, and that had been a lot, but some damage remained, and it made him feel fragile. He said, so we're pulling out, High Fist. Dujek was silent, then he grunted, problems, Whiskey Jack. One, we're about to lose Pale. As I suspected, Caladan Brood left the Crimson Guard to handle things up north, and marched down here with his, and marched down here with his Tist Andy. He's also got Revi with him, and Jorik's Bargast, who've just finished chewing up Gold Morath. Two, it gets worse. They heard Dujek as he swallowed. He went on. Seven Cities is maybe a week away from open rebellion. The Empress knows it. Some claw from Genabaris arrived half an hour ago, looking for Tashren. My people got to him first. Whiskey Jack, he was carrying a handwritten message from the Empress to Tashren. I've just been outlawed by the Empire. It's official, and Tashren was to have effected my arrest and execution. We're on our own, friend. 
when he says my people got to the claw first, I wonder <laughs> what that means for that claw. You think he's still alive? If he's lucky. Um, <laughs> this, I, I think when they say, didn't he say earlier in the book, this somebody tried to kill him and they oh yeah they basically turned, mutilated the corpse so bad they couldn't hardly tell what yes, it was they couldn't tell it was male yes. or female <laughs> so i'm like wow that's that's kind of gnarly it's like i'm hoping it was i'm hoping it was quick Man. but uh, wow. yeah i get a picture here of like a cia <laughs> interrogation room yeah it's like he was like uh what do you call that uh oh my god what's the word they use uh when they take they them black to, bagged them to, is that what they call it yeah <laughs> That's power. That's part of it. But there's a the rendition. They rendered it. But they rendition. Oh man. They renditioned it. Okay. <laughs> also, this was quite the extreme move from Lacine. Dude, I completely forgot that she just was so bold as to just outlaw Dujek, especially with his army. There. Yes. It's like, what does she expect? What do you think is going to happen? Unless, unless that's what she wanted to happen. What? Have no control over the army at all? Well, no, but have them free to do their to do something and not look like she's behind it. They could still be acting unbeknownst mm. to a plan that she has inst instituted, maybe. Oh, yeah, but without Dujek to command them, he's the greatest commander they have. Well, maybe I think I think the outlawing maybe that was to spur something into action. Okay, and this is done. I mean, possibly this is what was needed to set the plan into motion. She's playing 4D chess. Yes. Whiskey Jack closed his eyes briefly, then said, understood, High Fist. So when do you march? Dujek said, seems the Black Maranth are with us. Don't ask why. Anyway, I have a parlay <laughs> at dawn tomorrow with Caladan Brood and Kalor. That will decide matters, I suspect. Either he lets us walk or he kills us taking pale. Everything's riding on what he knows about the Panion Seer. Whiskey Jack said, we're rendezvousing with some Black Maranth in a couple of days, High Fist. Makes me wonder how much they'd guessed when that arrangement was made. Anyway, they'll take us to you, wherever you are. Dujek said, no. We may be under siege here. The Black will drop you off on the Catlin Plain. Their orders are clear on this, but you're welcome to try overruling them. Quick reminder on a little bit of geography. Catlin is to the east of Daruzistan and the Gadrobi Hills. So kind of the direction where race was coming from. Whiskey Jack grimaced and thought, not likely. He said, Catlin Plain it is. Just means it'll take us longer to get to you, sir. The glow surrounding the bones flickered briefly and they heard an echoing thump, which caused Fiddler to chuckle. <laughs> Dujek had pounded a fist on the table at his end of the conversation. Whiskey Jack shot Fiddler a ferocious look. I love that. Fiddler's back there cracking up. Oh, I love it laughing back to the black Moranth. Mm -hmm. are they sticking with them because of do jack or is it because of whiskey jack i suspect it's because of whiskey jack that's what i was thinking too as uh when they made that deal with him at the beginning when they were getting to Darugistan, and they, they mentioned about we were aware of you know, about, about bird who steals mm -hmm. conversation we talked about that there and so there is some respect for whiskey jack from these right folks. he had asked about a warrior that had one hand that was in the black Maranth. He had yes. asked about whether they were around. He didn't get an answer from the person he asked it from. Yeah. So he's just kind of like, okay. Yeah. It was like 3000 miles later. He is <laughs> known to them. Yeah. Yeah, he is. So, okay. Dujek bellowed captain Perrin. Perrin stepped forward and said, here, high fist. Dujek said, what I'm about to say is to whiskey Jack, but I want you to hear it. Captain Perrin said, I'm listening. Dujek continued. Sergeant, if you want to be in my army, you'd better get used to the new order. 
First, I'm placing the bridge burners under Captain Perrin's command. Second, you're not a sergeant anymore, Whiskey Jack. You are my second in command, and that means responsibilities. I don't want you anywhere near Pale. And you know I'm right, damn it. Captain Perrin? Perrin said yes. Dujek said, Whiskey Jack's squad has earned the right to walk. Understood? If any of them elect to rejoin the bridge burners, fine. But I don't want any recriminations if they decide otherwise. I trust that's clear. Perrin said, yes, High Fist. Dujek went on. And with Whiskey Jack between commissions, he's just coming along for the ride, if you follow me, Captain. Perrin grinned and said, I do. Dujek said, now the Black Maranth will know the story by the time they pick you up, so go with them. Perrin again said, yes, High Fist. <laughs> Dujek growled, questions, Whiskey Jack? Whiskey Jack glumly said, no. Dujek said, all right, hopefully we'll talk later. The bones glow died. <laughs> Whiskey Jack does not seem too happy with this situation. No, he does not. hes I don't think he likes being told to sit back. I think with Whiskey Jack, it's not so much that he doesn't like not being involved. I don't think he wants to be second in command. No, I think he would rather just be following orders straight down the line. I mean, I don't think he, I, I, I think he's where he wants to be with the bridge burners. Right. But I don't think he really necessarily wants to lead because you know how it is. Heavy is the head. Where's the crown? Well, the way he thinks of the soldiers, it has a heavy toll yeah. on him. There's some people that really want it does. to be in power, which are probably the people that shouldn't be in power, you know? Yes. But Whiskey Jack's exactly. the one, the way he leads, it just wears so heavily on him because he gets so emotionally involved in the well-being of his soldiers. Yeah. And he's a, he's a, with great power comes great responsibility kind of guy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He feels very obligated to his people, to his men under him. Captain Perrin looked to each of the soldiers and studied their faces. He thought to himself, they were to have been my command. I could not have done better anywhere. He gruffly said, very well. Who is ready to be outlawed and counted among Dujak's rebels? Trotz was the first to rise, his teeth bared. <laughs> he was followed by Quick Ben, Hedge, and Mallet. A shocked silence followed. Then Kalam nodded at Fiddler and cleared his throat, then said, we're with you, only we're not going with you. Me and Fiddler, that is. Perrin said, can you explain that? Apslar surprised everyone as she spoke. They'll find that hard to do, Captain. And I admit, I'm not sure what they're up to, but they're coming with me. Back to the Empire, home. Fiddler shrugged uneasily and rose to face Whiskey Jack. He said, we feel we owe it to her, sir. He then looked to Perrin and said, and we're settled on it, sir, but we're coming back if we can. Whiskey Jack pushed himself painfully to his feet. As he turned to face Perrin, he froze. Behind Perrin, Call sat upright in the bed. Whiskey Jack said, um, and gestured. Everyone swung to face Call. Perrin stepped forward in genuine relief. He said, Call, I'm... He stopped, then said tonelessly, You've been awake for some time, I see. <laughs> Call's eyes flicked to the bones stuck in the tabletop, then returned to Perrin. He said, heard it all. So tell me, Perrin, do you soldiers need any help getting out of Darujistan? <laughs> I love mm -hmm. it. What a stand-up guy. He just wakes up and he's ready. Absolutely. This ending to this scene is a testament to how Erickson can cut the tension. Yes. You know, it ends yes. with a funny note that's really heartwarming. Yes. Where we just went through this really difficult scene right here. Yes. And the great thing is, is that we finally are introduced, really, to Cole. You know, and now you see the, the traits that make 
coal so valuable to Ralic and Murillo. And it's a beautiful thing, you know, to see that, you know, to see this is this, it's almost like we're already seeing payback on that investment. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. Back in the garden at Simtow's, now Calls <laughs> estate, Ralic <laughs> stood in the darkness beneath the trees at the edge of the glade. His magic deadening powers had proved insufficient after all. He'd been driven from his seat by what had felt like a god's hand, sure and powerful and unyielding. He'd watched in astonishment as a maze of roots clambered swiftly across the clearing, headed toward the terrace. He'd heard a shriek, then the roots returned, wrapped around a man-shaped <laughs> apparition, which the roots pulled unceremoniously into the earth. And that would be the end to what we had witnessed at the end of chapter 22, when the remains of Mammoth had been dragged from the crater created by Hedge's Cusser. We had referred to this earlier in the episode. Yes. Relic had been filled suddenly with near euphoria. He knew with certainty that what grew here was right and just. What had been no more than a tree stump less than an hour ago was now a house. A massive door lay half buried in shadows beneath an arching branch. And would you say arching or arcing? Arching. Arching. <laughs> the arching, yeah. Beneath an arching branch. Vines barred shuttered windows. A balcony. The golden arcs. What? I said the golden arcs. <laughs> yeah. Or is it the golden arches? I'm sorry, I which one it is. I forgot. Okay, sorry. I apologize. Vines barred shuttered windows. A balcony hung above and to the left of the door, festooned with leaves and creepers. It led into a kind of tower, turreted above the second story and shingled to a gnarled peak. Another tower marked the house's front right flank, this one stockier and windowless, its roof flat with jagged merlins lining the edge. He suspected that this roof was a platform with access through a trapdoor of some kind. This paints a very clear picture of what an Azath looks like. It does. And I love how these city slicker Azath houses look. They actually look like houses. As opposed to? They probably are the same. Yeah. I never thought about that until you mentioned that. They probably are the same. Yeah, it's like KB Homes, but Azath version. <laughs> <laughs> Copy, control C, control V. You know? <laughs> oh. Hey, it works. You get the two bedroom model or the three bedroom model. You know, it's like... <laughs> the two tower model. Right. And you can and mirror it. If you... <laughs> oh. The glade around the structure had changed too, becoming mounded here and there as if the house's yard was a burial ground. Young, scraggly trees ringed each oblong mound, each growing as if an invisible wind twisted them away from the humped, grassy earth. The roots had dragged the apparition into one such mound. Again, this is an important visual. The garden surrounding the house is a critical function of the Azath. Note all of the mounds surrounding it and what just went yeah. into one of them. Yeah. Is it like the fertilizer for the house? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, if the house is a tree, that needs to be powered. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it felt right and just. These two words echoed in the assassin's head with an appeal that wrapped calm around his heart. He almost imagined he felt an affinity with this child house, as if it knew of him and accepted him. This is interesting, given he was trying to stifle its growth with his presence. Maybe the house can sense he's pure of heart. I think there is something in that. I don't know if it's a pure of heartness necessarily, or just that there was no malice, mm. to, you know, toward it, or that could. Because 
I'm a, these things apparently only show up for these type of events that we're seeing happen. I mean, he wasn't the, the house only shows up for the one entity. Right. That's kind of wild, isn't it? I, I never think about it like that until this now. It's kind of like that thing showed up for one guy, basically. The, everything else was deemed to be taken care yeah, of. Yeah, but I mean, the, the guy that it showed up for. Yeah, please. The guy was like Thanos almost. <laughs> like Thanos level. At least he thought he was. Yeah. I, I, you know what? I just, I guess we'll never know. Until the Avengers got a hold of him. Right? <laughs> Until the ace ass got a hold of him. <laughs> Shoot him up quick. Yeah. With another sourceless certainty, Relic knew the house to be empty. This is another function that you will see in some of the... I've referenced Michael Moorcock's Eternal Champion series multiple times. There's, also these, there's always an idea of, of a cosmic balance because there are lords of chaos and lords of lords of law and so and then you have the balance so there are agents of all three and the azath is almost kind of like the balance agent okay where you know in, in, in a way it's like this guy this guy's just too powerful to exist here we're gonna have to take him out we need a need an azath over here okay <laughs> i wonder who makes that decision i wonder who makes that decision that's what i want to know yeah <laughs> besides steve i mean steve but hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's not on on, the, on their world level, who makes that decision? The architect, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> With another sourceless certainty, he knew the house to be empty. Relic watched as the lines of the house grew firm, sharply defined. A musty smell pervaded the area, as of freshly turned earth. He felt at peace. A moment later, he heard thrashing behind him and whirled to find Vorkin stagger through the undergrowth. Her face was covered in blood from a gash to her brow, and she nearly collapsed into his arms. She gasped, Tistandi, after me, hunting. They seek to avenge a murder. Ralik looked past her, and his eyes detected silent movement among the trees, closing in. He hesitated and gripped Vorkin, who was now unconscious in his arms. He bent down, threw Vorkin over one shoulder, turned, and ran toward the house. He knew that the door would open for him, and it did. Beyond was a dark antechamber and an archway leading into a hallway running from side to side. A gust of warm, sweet air flowed over Ralik, and he entered without pause. This was quite brave of him. There are plenty of things that lure unsuspecting victims in. I think of things like Venus flytraps and other carnivorous plants. Maybe he took a calculated risk and trusted himself. Is this any more reckless than rubbing auditorial dust into your skin? Mm, good point. He's, uh, you know, apparently his instincts have served him okay uh, when it comes to magic and, and uh, that stuff. So I guess so. We'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> Corlat, blood kin to Surratt, slowed as she approached the strange house. The door had closed behind the two that had entered. She came to the edge of the clearing, then squatted. Her fellow hunters gathered slowly around her. Horult hissed angrily, then said, Have you summoned our lord, Corlat? Corlat shook her head and said, I know of such creations from old. The dead house of Malas City, the Odon house of seven cities, Azath Edi Imarn, pillars of innocence, this door will not open to us. Horult said, yet it opened to them. Corlat said, there is precedence. The Azath choose their own. It was so with the dead house. Two men were chosen, one who would be emperor, the other who would accompany him. 
Kelonved, and Dancer. This is a juicy bit of information here on two fronts. The Azath being selective of who is allowed to enter. That's important. And then the fact that Kelonved and Dancer were allowed to enter into Dead House in Malice City. Yes, it's also mouthwatering here. And I love that so much is said in such a short sentence. <laughs> yeah. It's like that's such a little bitty that's such a little bitty part. And you're like, what? That's two sentences. I'm sorry. They choose their own. It was so in the Dead House. Two, or, you know, this little paragraph is very tiny. And that's a lot of info. It would be easy to overlook. Yes, very easy. If you were just kind of blasting through this chapter because it's so riddled with just so many things happening. It's one of those things you could easily gloss over. Oh, yeah, because this this is an overwhelming chapter. It it is like the, you know, it's the final reel and it's like everybody's got guns. (laughs) There's 8 million rounds being exchanged. Bombs are going off everywhere. Dude, dragons are falling from the sky. Mm -hmm. Souls are being drank. Assassins being murdered. Dude, it's fantastic. I mean, dude, come on. Yes. <laughs> it's easy to overlook that. You're right. Orphantal whispered, I sense its power. Our Lord could destroy it now while it's still young. Corlat said, Yes, he could. She was silent for a moment. Then she rose and said, I am blood kin to the fallen. The others intoned, You are blood kin. Corlat went on, The quest for vengeance is ended. Our Lord will not be summoned. Leave him to his recovery. The Azath will not be touched, for it is new, a child. The Queen of Darkness spoke thus of light when it was first born. It is new, and what is new is innocent, and what is innocent is precious. Observe this child of wonder, and no respect. Orphantal scowled, then said, Thus did light survive, and so was darkness destroyed, the purity vanquished, and now you would have us flawed as our queen was flawed. Light became corrupted and destroyed our world, Corlat, or have you forgotten? Corlat's smile was a sad one. She said, cherish such flaws, dear brother, for our queen's was hope, and so is mine. Now we must leave. I like seeing the two viewpoints from the Tistandi here on how they view the introduction of light into dark. Yeah, and this is actually kind of something we covered a little bit earlier on, I believe, talking about whether people thought certain things was via like the testandy what they thought and some of that we have the you're right this this one group has that tradition of that it's awful but then she's got that nice viewpoint of like well this isn't new and sweet and we we must protect it because it's innocent right it's almost like the optimist view versus the pessimist view yeah and I'm, i'm guessing that's the two camps that exist in the uh in the, in the test and but I think there's only one other optimist and I don't know if he's an optimist. I think he's more of a pragmatist and that'd be Rake. Yeah. The test and that we see, they're all sad and just kind of gave up for the most yeah. part. Right. Yeah. They're very, they're very, they're walking dead. One additional thing on this section, RIP Surratt. This yeah. was our confirmation that Surratt was the test and that was killed by Vorkin within Baruch's estate. And I got to tell you, I feel bad for her since we never got to see her full potential realized throughout this whole book. Oh, I agree. Because what we did see was quite impressive. I mean, she got she turned into a clown well, she practically. Every buddy she of, went up against outwitted her or was way overpowered true. compared to her. She has, no, I guess she has no redemption for her. For She was probably good at some point, but she was also probably really old. Maybe this is what happens when you snooze, you lose. You get oh, old. man. Take it easy. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, I'm getting old. I'm that guy. It's all right. Outside of Simtel's estate, Kreppa watched Crocus approach. Crocus was clearly exhausted from running all night. 
Kropa nudged Marilio and fluttered his fingers in Crocus's direction. Again, I'd like to be on video so we could do the, the finger fluttering. We, we right. talked about that couple, several episodes ago. He, he said, the lad returns with undue haste, yet I fear such sad tidings as Kropa must bring. Marilio said, he's had a rough night all around. He leaned against the gate's support wall outside the Simtal estate. The streets were still empty. Kruppa gestured at Moonspawn, now a league to the west and well beyond the city's walls. He said, A remarkable contraption, that. However, Kruppa is pleased that it has chosen to depart. Imagine, even the stars blotted out, leaving naught but dread in this world. Marilio muttered, I need a drink. Kruppa said, Excellent idea. Shall we await the lad, however? They didn't have to wait long. Crocus recognized them and slowed his frantic run. He shouted, Absalar has been kidnapped by the Empire. I need help. He wobbled to a halt in front of Marilio and said, And Relic's still in the garden. Kruppa said, Tut, tut, easy, lad. Absalar's location is known to Kruppa. As for Relic, well... He turned to the street and waved his arms, then said, Breathe the night air, Crocus. A new year has begun. Come, let us walk, the three of us, masters of Darujistan. He linked arms with his friends and pulled them forward. Marilio sighed. Relic's missing. There's some kind of extraordinary house in Call's garden now. Kruppa leaned against Crocus and said, Ah, so much unveiled in that single statement. While no doubt the lad's secret, overriding concern at the moment, regards the fate of a fair young maiden whose life was saved at the last moment by a noble son named Gorlis, of all things. <laughs> saved, Kruppa says, from a ton of masonry shrugged off a wall. Twas heroic indeed. The last near swooned with satisfaction. Crocus demanded, What are you talking about? Who was saved? Marilio snorted and said, I think, dear Kruppa, master of Darujistan, you've got the wrong fair maiden in mind. How fickle the heart is with this yes, boy. Sir. Yes, he's already moved on. Mm -hmm. Crocus said, she's not fair anyway. Kruppa's chest swelled slightly. <laughs> he said, you need but ask the gods, lad, and they'll tell you that life itself isn't fair. Now, are you interested in how Lady Simtel's estate has just this night become Call's estate? Or is your mind so thoroughly enamored of this new love of yours that even the fates of your dearest friends, Kruppa included, yield such lack of interest? Crocus said, of course I'm interested. <laughs> Kruppa said, then the story begins, as always, with Kruppa. <laughs> Marilio groaned, thus spake the eel. Mm, nice nod to Nietzsche, I'm assuming. <laughs> with the thus spoke Zarathustra. <laughs> nice. The epilogue. It was morning, and down on one of the beaches of Lake Azure, a fisher boat rocked in the waves. It was unmoored and moments before pulling free of the pebbles. Mallet and Whiskey Jack sat atop a rock above the beach. Whiskey Jack had required help to join Mallet atop the rock. Mallet's gaze hesitated upon Quick Ben, who stood with shoulders hunched as he stared across the lake. Mallet followed Quick Ben's gaze. Moon's spawn hung low on the horizon, and Mallet grunted. It's heading south. I wonder what that means. Whiskey Jack squinted against the glare, then began to massage his temples. Mallet asked, more headaches? Whiskey Jack said, not so bad lately. Mallet muttered, it's the leg that worries me. I need to work on it some more, and you need to stay off it a while. Whiskey Jack grinned and said, as soon as there's time. Mallet sighed, we'll work on it then. On the forested slope behind them, Hedge called, They're coming in! Mallet helped Whiskey Jack stand and whispered, 
Hood knows it could have been a lot worse, right, Sergeant? Whiskey Jack glared across the lake and said, three lost ain't that bad, considering. A pained expression crossed Mallet's face, but he said nothing. When he said three lost, does that mean he's talking about Kalam, Quick Ben? I'm sorry, Kalam, Fiddler, and Absalar? Because they didn't lose anybody, right? Nobody died. No. Yeah, it's just got to be those three. Yeah, okay. Qu- yeah, Quick, Kalam, and Absalar. No, it's Fiddler, right? Kalam, sorry. and Absalar. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Whiskey Jack growled, let's move. Captain Perrin hates tardiness. And maybe the Maranth have good news. Be a change, wouldn't it? I love how Perrin is already making an impression on everybody, you know? <laughs> I love, yeah. And I love how he's earned the right to command this Motley crew. Sorry, that's a non-umlauted Motley crew, not the band. But, uh, I, I, but yes, he's earned the right to command these guys. And they and they now, they like him. He's one of them. On the beach, Quick Ben watched Mallet supporting Whiskey Jack up the slope. Was it time, he wondered? To stay alive in this business, no one could afford to let up. The best plans work inside other plans. And when it's right to faint, faint big. Keeping the other hand hidden is the hard part. Did I just hear Quick Ben saying plans within plans? Plans within plans, baby. (laughs) Yes, you did. (laughs) Quick Ben felt a stab of regret. No, it wasn't time. Give the old man a chance to rest. He forced himself into motion. He wouldn't let himself look back. Never a good idea. The scheme was hatched. He whispered to himself, Whiskey Jack's going to howl when he hears this one. And knowing Quick Ben, I'm sure it's going to be a good one. I agree. Funny and dangerous. You think (laughs) Quick Ben's an adrenaline jetty? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Going into the realm of shadow in Shadow Throne's own realm and taunting him. I mean, come on, dude. Oh, I love Ben. Yeah, just a madman. <laughs> Absolutely. Captain Perrin listened to the others on the beach below, but didn't move to join them. It wasn't time yet. Perrin's brush with Ascendant seemed to have left him with a new sensitivity, or perhaps it was the Odotaro's sword scabbarded at his side. But he could sense Tattersail now, already in her adolescence. He promised, I will come to you. When this Panion seer and his cursed holy war is crushed, I will come to you then, Tattersail. In his mind, he heard the words, I know. He stiffened. The voice hadn't been his own. Or had it? He waited for more, but was met with silence. He thought, ah, my imagination, nothing more. To think you would call up enough of your old life, to find the feelings you once held for me, find them and feel them once again, I am a fool. He rose from his crouch at Lauren's graveside. He thought, look at me now. Agent for the adjunct once, now a soldier. Finally, a soldier. He smiled and made his way down to his squad. The voice said, then I shall await the coming of a soldier. He stopped in his tracks, then smiled and continued on. He whispered, now that was not my imagination. As we discussed earlier in the book, this relationship between Perrin and Tattersail can be incredibly important to some readers. Uh, this part we just read does a good job of putting some breadcrumbs out to increase anticipation of them eventually meeting again. I agree. And I'm sorry if we ever gave it any short shrift in earlier episodes because it is important. And uh, I have another quick just aside for the it's kind of funny if this was a D&D module. Was that the prize all along? Was the was the auditorial sword for Perrin? Perrin oh my won gosh, that, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> in this in this module, 
Oh, that, that's the loot at the end. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh-huh. It's like the bit. That's all. It's a that's a, that's a pretty hefty win. It's like <laughs> yes. It's like getting a vorpal blade, dude. That's like getting the boss's weapon. No, yes. you know what? That demon's axe would have been the Ooh. what people would ask for. <laughs> you know they would. I know. I know a person that would have wanted Dragnapur. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> that would have been me. I would have been like, all right, give me a strength check. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll roll. It's an impossible to win. It's going to roll a 20. You got to do the 20. It's a cold No, this is, a, this is like a 40. Like, seriously. <laughs> an impossible. Was, we kind of play with the house rules of of, of, 20, of called shots, which okay. never happened. Never, no one ever did it. But it was if you called some ridiculous shot and you it's like, you know what? If you if you call it and you hit it with that 20, you got it. Okay. It's like you know, it's so ridiculous. You get the cold shot if you nail it with a twenty. So nice. So that was kind of the, that was the house rules. We had loose house rules. <laughs> the vessel hugged the southern shore of Lake Azure, making for Davran and the river mouth. Kalam leaned on the gunwale, gazing at the north horizon's ragged, snow-capped mountains. Near him stood another passenger, hardly memorable and disinclined to talk. The only voices reaching Kalam came from Absalar and Crocus. They sounded excited, each revolving around the other in a subtle dance that was yet to find its accompanying words. Kalam's mouth slowly turned into a half-smile. It had been a long time since he had heard such innocence. Crocus appeared beside him with Moby, Mammoth's demon familiar, clutching his shoulder. Crocus said, Call says that the Empire's capital, Unta, is as big as Darujistan, is it? Kalam shrugged and said, maybe. A lot uglier. I don't expect we'll have a chance to visit it, though. Itkokan lies on the south coast, while Unta is on Kartul Bay, the northeast mm. coast. Miss Darujistan already? I hate spiders, and I know that's where the Peralt spiders come from, is Kartul. The island Isn't of Kartul. Yes, I, I'm terrified of that place. <laughs> Yeah, because of the spiders alone. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something real quick. This is a personal aside. Did you ever see the movie Arachnophobia? No, it was a comedy kind of, but it was also it was actually more of a serious horror movie. But the idea was that this there was a breed of spider that had, you know got into the country, and it, there's a breed of spiders in South America that they catch. They're big enough they catch your birds. Oh yeah, like big I've birds. seen those. Yeah, and so I've seen the dead one up face to face i've seen a dead one. Oh wow and that thing that thing is as big as a plate its legs were bigger than any plate i've ever seen and mm. i didn't even want to be near the i didn't want to be near the carcass of this thing it's like oh my good lord almighty that's just you no know, keep that down there please <laughs> or keep it in australia or new zealand where it's how like, did you see this yeah um, australia <laughs> how did i see this um i was i was trying to to date a young lady this i'd have been 19 and she, the big craze everyone had was getting the little boa constrictors, and she had got this one from a pet store in Mesquite, and they'd got it from this guy, and this store closed, and they got it from a, a dude that bred them in Balch Springs, and he had some other things, and he had some things that he shouldn't have had, like a, he had a Gila monster in there. Oh, okay. And it's great. I got to see a Gila monster. Yeah, but that was pretty mm-hmm. cool, but but she had some emperor scorpions and they were enormous but they don't have stingers mm-hmm. and she came out with one of those things on her arm and i came out of the window of that of my truck mm-hmm. i mean it was like I, I mean it was that bad i just freak out so bad but that spider i walked over there with her and that thing i could see it from 30 foot away i'm like walking up on that thing and the hair is standing up on me and that thing's dead i'm like i don't it's like it still gives you the willies mm-hmm. but it was it was enormous it's interesting 
I think about these people that don't have any aversion to holding a scorpion, a spider, yes. snakes. I don't want to have anything to do with any of those things. Yes. But there's some yes. people that don't have any issues with that whatsoever. Nope. It's wild. I, I don't yeah, I don't have that. I have a yeah. They look alien, dude. If there's if there's an argument for aliens, I think it's the arachnid class. Mm, cephalopods. Okay. Agreed. Cthulhu, man. <laughs> yeah. 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 Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Oh my goodness. All right. Kalam had asked if Crocus misses Darujistan already. Regret came over Crocus's face. He stared down into the waves and said, just some people there. Kalam grunted and said, know how you feel, Crocus. Hood's breath. Look at Fiddler back there, mooning away as if somebody had cut off one of his arms and one of his legs. You know, for how tough these guys can be, put them on a boat and they turn into babies, don't they? <laughs> I, if there's that, I'm guessing this once the excitement of being, it's like got a few minutes to rub together, they kind of become sullen and withdrawn. No, he's talking about being seasick. Oh, oh. Yeah. That's, that is true. That's true. I'm sorry. That's, it is funny. These tough guys get, I don't know if I, you know what, I don't, I've, I've been on the ocean on a yacht once and I grew up on the water on a you know, skiing, but that's different. Ocean's different motion. I've, it is. I've not been on it for pro. I've not been on it for prolonged period of times. Mm. I didn't have a problem, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't have a problem. Because I understand that if you're on one for a long time, you can develop it even a little bit later, don't you? Because you've been on one for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, the longest I was out was 57 days, and Ooh. some storms came through. One time, I was trying to sleep. I was on the upper bunk, and it was so bad that I had to lay on my side with my back to the wall. Uh -huh. The boat was going up and down to the point where I would be rocking back to hit the wall every time it went up and down. Like oh. it was, it, it was really hard <laughs> to sleep that night. Yeah, it was. I mean, this was like a three hundred foot vessel. Oh my word! But it was still moving pretty good. Generally speaking, it's not that bad. But that time, for whatever reason, it was just moving. Mm. And that's really the only time I really felt like I had to take some Dramamine because I started to get a little bit, it was getting a little rough because it was just that okay. constant harsh motion. Normally, it wasn't terrible. Okay. That's what I would think because I've, I've been on a, on, a, on a nice day and it was like, this is not bad. <laughs> oh, the doldrums are the worst though. I would much rather have that than when it's midday it's the water's like glass and there isn't mm -hmm. any hint of a breeze it's terrible the sun it's oh. so you to want to talk about humidity it is as humid as it can possibly be right it is much better to have some chop you don't have to have like yeah is it like five foot seas or something like that you know and get some wind in there that's pretty good yeah That'd be nasty. Mm -hmm. I mean, being that hot and dry in the doldrums like that, or not dry, but hot and wet, yeah, and muggy. Yeah, it's muggy <laughs> and there's no breeze. That's the worst. So you wear coveralls, hard hat. You know, you got all this protection equipment on. Right, it's really uncomfortable. Crocus said, Absalar still can't believe you'd go to all this trouble for her. She doesn't remember being much liked in your squad." Kalam said, "Wasn't her though, was it? This woman here is a fisher girl from some two copper village, and she's a long way from home." Krogus muttered, she's more than that. <laughs> what tone do you think he said that in? <laughs> <There's> a... <laughs> it's like, a, wait, wait. Oh, she's more than that. Yeah, okay, like... <laughs> there we go. Krogus muttered, she's more than that. <laughs> he had a coin in his hands and was playing with it absently. Kalam threw Krogus a sharp look and said, really? In a deadpan tone. <laughs> Krogus nodded affably. He held up the coin and examined the face on it. He asked, do you believe in luck, Kalam? Kalam growled, no. Crocus grinned happily and said, me neither. He flipped the coin into the air. They watched it plummet into the sea, flash once, 
then vanished beneath the waves. From near the bow, Circle Breaker slowly nodded to himself. The eel would be delighted with the news, <laughs> not to mention greatly relieved. Then he returned his attention to the West and wondered what it would be like, no longer anonymous to the world. And this ends the first tale of the Malazan Book of the Fallen. Mm. We did it. We finished mm. one. We did it, dude. Wow. We did it. I'm oh. real proud of this. Great job. Yeah. That was awesome. Great job, dude. Yeah, what a Great chapter, book, too. man. Yeah. What a chapter and an epilogue. Great epilogue, too. Yeah. All right, for standout moments. Yeah, bring it. The entire battle between Rake and the Ghislaine demon witnessed from Crocus's perspective was enjoyable. Yes. You know what? It's like the whole, it's like, we know that this for standout moments, it's just the entire chapter because <laughs> it's the finale to this introduction to this greatest series of all times. Uh, but again, these are some of the images that have always stayed with me. And I would just, uh, I would just love to be able to see that on the screen. Yes. That, with the right person directing it. Yes. Who would you get to play Rake? I've been thinking about that. You know what's Have interesting? You, I'm not. I never thought about that before. I got to put some more thought into it because yeah, that's a big question. Jason Isaacs, for some reason, I think it's because he played Malfoy's dad in right. the Harry Potter movies, and he had that well, long I, hair. I haven't seen those, but and maybe that's why I, I have not seen any Harry okay. Potter. So I'm a Harry Potter virgin. I've been seeing these AI generated weightlifting things, and they take Harry Potter <laughs> and they made it Harry Squatter. And so it, Harry's this big weightlifter. Oh my God, it's so funny. It, it's hilarious. You know, the funniest thing I've always had with Harry Potter is a couple of things. There's a series of books. Uh, uh, there's a DC comics called Tim Hunter and the Books of Magic. This predates Harry Potter. He's a young kid, same thing, English kid, who actually is one of the only true people on the planet that has actual true sorcery at his, uh, at his disposal as a natural born power. And then there's a blend between it. There's a Michael Caine character from a, a series of books called Harry Palmer. Harry Palmer is very dry British spy stuff. It's real world spy stuff, not anything real flashy. It's the people that brought us all the Bond movies. But this was there at the same era they were doing all the early Bonds. They made these Harry Palmer movies with Michael Caine. They're very dry, very easy going. But Harry Potter is such a, to me, a ripoff on Palmer and Tim Hunter. Mm. And so for some reason, I was like, okay, I just have no interest because I feel like they're, she's already stealing from two sources I already like. I'm like I mean, she's so inspired like, okay. by them, you know, to make and her she own could thing. Be, it, it, it could be, she, she is English. Yeah. So these are, so it could be homage. Mm-hmm. And so but I, I felt like, eh, I've already been there, done that. I, I have a bunch of books of magic and never cared for it. And I'm like, eh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> And so I just never lean that way. It's, I'm, I, I'm sure they're fantastic books. You don't sell that many books without at least having something decent in there. I read them when I was young. They were coming out when I was okay. around 20. So okay. I read through them as they came out. Yeah. And they were entertaining. And I, I, I would never trash talk them. I've not read them. I don't know them. Yeah, They're good for people I, that I age. The, right. I think that's my thing is when I was when, when at that age, I think I was probably like 30. I'm like, well, I'm already over yeah, here on this side. I, I would say know. the target, I would say probably like 14, 15 is probably like the ideal age to yeah. read those. For you and I, we started young reading the stuff that we read. So yes. like I was way beyond that level of stuff yes. by that age anyway, but it was entertainment. That's okay. It's definitely not like this. And I'm a Christian and a lot, I know he catches a lot of flack from the Christians and I'm not really, you know, particularly sure why, because I'm a Lord of the Rings fan and that's embraced by Christians. Mm. And I'm a, I'm a fan of a person that lets people read what they want to read so, you, so they have a more informed 
viewpoint. So I have no problem. People want to read that stuff. If it gets people to read, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I have the problems with, with it. But other than that, it's like, read it, you know, check it out. Hmm. <laughs> I'm very, you know, I'm very open-minded to reading things. My parents are very, my parents were extremely open and as were yours. It sounds like your mother was very open with allowing you to read a lot of stuff. It sounded like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, I mean that in a very, thank my, I'm thankful my parents were open-minded and let me read. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that I was reading was stuff my mom had read. So okay. I just picked up the stuff that she was reading. Okay. Yeah. My, the only thing, my, the only thing of my mother's that I have an interest in, because my, my, my father and I don't have the same interest at all. And my mother loves a lot of mystery. And I mean like old school Agatha Christie kind of stuff. And, but she loves true crime and she likes, she turned me on to Harold Schechter and I turned me on to a couple of books about serial killers. And, and I look at my dear little mother and I'm like, good gracious. Mm-hmm. She's got that same dark mm-hmm. twisted sense that I've got. It's like, wow. <laughs> Yeah, she just I, she gave me my book on Ed Gein and the book oh, on man. Albert Fish. Oh, I'm like, man. yeah, I'm like, well, okay, uh, this woman's twisted. This is my lover. Yeah. She hides it well, but the female fascination with serial killers is something because the podcasts yes. that are absolutely killing it from download perspective, it's all this serial killer stuff, and it's all women yes. audience. It's crazy. Yes, it's I don't it, understand it. It's amazing. Yeah, I I like some of it, but. I like serial killers, but my serial killing fascination tends to lean to the stuff that my mother leaned, leaned, turned me on to the more morbid stuff. And I don't like that, mm. you know, I, but I'm more drawn to the more morbid ones. You know, I miss those kind of movies like seven and uh, yeah. like the bone collector. There, there was a whole bunch yeah. of movies that came out in the nineties and early two thousands. I want to say that were pretty good. I like that type of mystery where the detectives are hunting down these killers. And there's, you know, some type of twist. I, I, and I forget that you also have seen the same stuff that I have. I always forget this a lot of times. So I'm going to ask you a question because I know you love all the Hannibal Lecter stuff. Mm-hmm. Manhunter or Red Dragon? You know, I tried to watch Manhunter, but mm-hmm. I saw Red Dragon before it. And okay. so okay. I couldn't get into Manhunter. Okay, I get it. Yeah, I get it. To me, I love Manhunter because that's truly, to me, it introduces us to the idea that Brian Cox plays a magnificent Hannibal Lecter that is that most people don't even know about this in this day and age. For me, I saw Silence of the Lambs when I was pretty young. And okay. Anthony Hopkins yeah. left such an impression on me as Hannibal Lecter. Like I couldn't I see it. it as anybody else. I was just so blown away by Michael Mann. That's my that was my introduction to Michael Mann. Oh, okay. So, you know. Mine was Last that, of the Mohicans. <laughs> right on, dude. Last of the Mohicans is great too. But he also did Thief. And of course, Heat. Yeah, Heat. I mean, Please. yeah, the, one of the greatest movies. Yeah, he, he, he needs he needs to not have done any other movies in his life for that that movie alone. Yeah, but then we wouldn't have gotten <laughs> Miami Vice, which I love. Collateral. Collateral. I love Miami Vice too. I love Collateral. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the last thing of his I've seen. I'm ashamed to say. Yeah, those okay. three. Yeah. Okay, we need to move yeah, on. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Woo. What a dig- what a digression, Billy. All right. My word. Sorry. Now, hey, it's the end of the it's the it's the end of the book digression. It's okay. I think it's allowed. <laughs> All right. We were talking about that battle between Rake and the Galane and yes. the interplay of the two weapons, one light and the other dark. Again, what an amazing oh. visual spectacle that would be. I would love to see that. Oh yeah. Oh, that would it would look amazing because I know it does in my head. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and then Rake finally seeing him go all out to finish that yes. demon off was really impressive as well. Yeah. I like that it took a little bit of effort for Rake at first. And through the whole book, when you see Rake, he's pretty, you know, when he handles things, he just mercilessly, easily handles things. Mm-hmm. Here, he had to work a little bit for it. He did. And then Vorkin's attack, 
that was another visual spectacle with the glowing hands and th- that yes. whole scene was really neat. Oh, I love, and I just love how those well-placed bricks from a young crocus take Vulcan out. Just yeah, to, something as mundane great. as a brick taking her out. That, I mean, you can't help but laugh. Yeah, really good. Crocus taking both of those situations like a champ is impressive. Really impressive. Dragon falls out of the sky, blows up the street. He runs past it, watches this whole fight. He's taken oh. it without issue and then goes upstairs and saves Mammoth from this person that's incredibly dangerous. Yes, it's like <laughs> it's like some young kid wanders in off the street, wandering past all these things and just takes out a Sith Lord real quickly. It's like, okay, hey man, are you okay over there? It's like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like he's the same kid from 24 hours ago. I mean, he's really grown in these last right, two chapters, right. which has been covering the last 24 hours, but it's like, holy smokes, he's grown quick. Tastrin getting knocked out by the defeat of the Galane demon was an interesting twist. Is this a, a Gardens of the Moonism? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I don't recall. I, I, the, summoning is not that common. That I, re- I mean, you see a lot of stuff, but I don't recall people being knocked out by their summons. It's very specific. Yeah. <laughs> we don't see a lot of them getting taken out by Dragnapur, though. So Right. <laughs> that's, that's true. Maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, probably so. Dujic laying the situation out for the bridge burners really move things forward from a story perspective. Yeah, it does. It helps set us up for the for the whole series. They built a bridge there for the whole series, and I didn't realize it until on rereads on each reread how much of a series, how much he's laid out. I mean, you've talked about this ad nauseum through this whole book mm-hmm. of how the layout, how the hints of this stuff. I'm like, wow. I just, I just miss it. You know, it's it's amazing. Right. We get some breadcrumbs for a lot of stuff. Yes. Kalam and Fiddler deciding to help Absalar get home. That was really a stand-up thing for those guys to do. Yes. I, I always find this particularly sweet because Quickman and Kalam realize Absalar has been sorely used, and they now want to help because they've had such animosity, to, and rightfully so, had a lot of animosity and fear of her <laughs> because we know that she could have killed them. Mm-hmm. But, you know... She, they, you know, it showed we, she's not a one-dimensional character. They're not one-dimensional characters. They actually care about her, and they see that she's actually been a victim, and they want to help her because they're like, "Wow, we she was badly used," and it also fits in with the plan. They alluded to this that she's more than she was. She's incredibly yes. complex now. Yeah, she's like the Anil diversion. Yeah, she went from sadistic, vengeance-seeking to completely innocent, out of her element, and then now she's something else. Yes. Which is interesting. It's like a, it's a, it's like some kind of union, I guess, of the two. I enjoyed seeing Whiskey Jack glumly accepting his fate as <laughs> Dujak's second. That is too funny. Yeah, reluctant it's like, to it's take funny. that on. It's, yeah, it's very reluctant. It does not want that. And then I also liked Cole offering to help get them out of the city. That was real stand up of him as well. Very cool of calling that. And again, this is where we finally see who Cole really is. That underneath all that drink, mm-hmm. we see him. We see a really good man. And then Ralik bravely carrying Vorkin into the Azath, not even yes. thinking twice about it. Yeah, he's like invited. I feel like he was invited into the Azath. Mm-hmm. I love that. Or lured. Yeah, well, well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. That info drop on Kelanved and Dancer entering Deadhouse in Malice City. That's a lot. Big one, yeah. That's a big, and we've alluded to this through the whole thing. Now it's all out in the open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shadow throw to contain a rope. This is, that's how they did it, somehow with the Deadhouse. Corlette dismissing the vow of vengeance it gives you a little insight into her character. We only got like three sentences to her, this book, the whole book. Yeah. And she been very wise words. Though. I like her giving up that, uh, giving up any vengeance. You know, I like her calling off the vengeance, you know, basically I'm the blood. This is, you know, this is where the vengeance ends. Right. Let's just stop. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I think, and another part of what makes Erickson's reads so good to me is the fact that we don't get a lot of answers on every single point. And I don't need that stuff. That's a very modern, and I mean, super modern concept for the, you know, I mean, like within the past five years concept of having to have everything answered. We don't need everything answered. I like how he, uh, he, he lets things dangle and some things he doesn't. Right. But you just have to take it. And it's like, we, I, I, I like that he doesn't care what people think. It's like, I'm, you're going to take it because I'm, I'm right and you're going to take it. <laughs> well, I mean, in most cases, at some point, he comes to it. You just got to be patient. Yes. Oh, yeah. You do. Yeah. This whole book paid out, dude. Mm -hmm. Whole series pays out. Yeah. <laughs> Perrin hearing Tattersell's voice in his head. That was cool. That is also particularly sweet. And I and like I, like I said at the moment we talked about it, I'm sorry that we forgot that I forget that when we criticized this a few months back. When I first read that book, first couple of times I read it, that meant just the same to me. It's very important at the time. And I love that relationship between them. Kalam and Crocus's conversation on the boat. I liked it. Uh, very sweet. Yeah, it was short, but sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And then the book ending with Circle Breaker on his way to his new life. That's I like that. A great ending. Absolutely. Just a really, I know I forgot to mention one other thing that, that I really liked too, was the reference that Perrin made a, uh, about being a soldier. Basically as a, as a kid at the beginning of the book, he wants to be a soldier at the end of the book. He's a soldier. Yes. And he doesn't know if he likes it. It's kind of like, I want to be a soldier. Well, I guess I'm a soldier. Now. Finally a soldier. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts. Book one is down. Book one down, baby. And wow. One tenth finished now i hate to break it to you i hate to break it to you we're probably <laughs> it's like not even one ten five percent maybe <laughs> i know it i know it because some of those that's the dream that's those are enormous they are i'm looking at them on my shelf and they get thicker every book <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the last books look as like this like the first two books put together yes. don't they yeah almost it's uh, but, you know thick it, boys and like i said now it starts to get interesting i mean it's been interesting but i mean folks we have just dipped our toes into this and we're, I'm so excited about going through your favorite book, yes. starting real quickly here, Dead House Gates, in yes. the coming months. I'm super excited about that one. That's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. And again, I just wanted to thank all of the listeners for finishing book one of this magnificent series with us. I cannot believe that we actually finished and are gearing up to start book two. Stay tuned, folks. It only gets better. And thanks for listening. Yes. Thank you very much. For those of you that have been with us since the beginning, we really appreciate your support. Yes. It means a lot to us when we see... The audience is growing. People are enjoying it. And yes. it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. Yes. And I'm excited to continue. Yes. We will be doing a recap episode of our favorite moments of this book. We're going to go through everything and talk through everything that really stuck out to us from this book in a single episode. Yeah. Then we will go on to Dead House Gates. So yeah. next week's episode will be a recap and then we will go on. Looking forward. Yes. Looking forward to it. So looking forward to it, thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Good night. We thank you all for joining us today. Again, we'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us. And we've had a really great time talking about the topic today. If you would like to support our show, you can find us at horsefrogproductions.com, where you can find our Patreon link. Depending on the platform you're listening from, it may also be in the episode description. And if you'd like to contact us uh, through email, it's at contact at horsefrogproductions.com.